Welcome to the first episode of Sustained Business. Today's guest is no other than Andy Last, CEO of the agency Mullen Low Salt and author of the book Business on a Mission, How to Build a Sustainable Brand. A conversation full of great tips for any businesses aiming to be and stay relevant in the long run. Enjoy. Thank you very much for being here today. I'm with um, Andy Lars, who is the CEO of Mullen Law Salt. Um, Andy, we've met before when you worked with um, one of the companies that I was working for as well, um, called Mondelez, and that was like um, that was the time where I actually discovered the whole world of agency that were. Um, really focused on sustainability and I was really impressed by everything that you've done with Melano and with your team, etc. So um, can you talk to us a little bit more about your company, your position, um, what is Melano Salt and yeah. uh, what's the focus of your company? Yeah, of course. Um, uh, lovely to be here and nice to, um, to, to be able to talk again. Um, so we, we set up Salt as a, as a business in 2000. Um, and we sold to became part of the Mullen Low Group in 2017. So we, we've been uh, been with our um, uh, our new family for four years now. Uh, but the focus of the business uh, was always around communication. But from kind of 2006 was a was a pivotal year for us, in that we were helping companies communicate about good things they were doing, um, often around CSR. Um, uh, maybe in philanthropy, things like that. Um, but we were working with Unilever at the time. We still work with Unilever uh, as an agency. And they were doing a lot of work. We were doing a lot of work with them around toothbrushing and hand washing because they sell toothpaste and they sell soap. Um, so the more people, uh, more often people brush their teeth, the more mm-hmm. toothpaste they sell, the more people wash their hands, the more soap they sell. Um, but we, each of them, they were doing good programs. They were uh, running programs to encourage toothbrushing in parts of the world where uh, maybe it wasn't such an ingrained habit, and in other parts of the world, encouraging people to brush twice a day rather than once a day, all of which is, is very good for oral health. Uh, mm-hmm. And similarly, they were running programs to encourage hand washing, which is very good for preventing disease, as we've all has become front of mind for all of us over the last Definitely, year or so. Yeah. And what struck me then was that in all these programs companies were doing good and were talking about doing good but they very rarely said it was good for business Um, and that was the kind of key moment for me that if the company didn't say they were promoting hand washing to sell more soap or they were promoting toothbrushing to sell more toothpaste then the NGOs they were partnering with wouldn't quite believe them um, the, the, the whole of the company wouldn't necessarily get behind it. There'd be plenty of people who've, who enjoy doing good, um, but they would see it as slightly separate to the monthly sales targets they were required to hit. And actually that honesty and that transparency, we believed, would open things up. And, and they have opened things up. And I think what we've seen over the last 15 years since then is more and more companies linking uh, these programs that do good and do social good to their business and making it integral to their business rather than uh, something nice on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's really what we've done for the last 15 years is help companies identify social and environmental programs that link to their business 
and find ways of, of, of linking them more closely to their business and talking about them in, a, in an appropriate way, because it isn't about saying, you know, we're mercenary. Equally, it's, no. not, it's not about pretending you're not a company and that the company mm-hmm. doesn't exist to make, uh, make a profit too, because the, yeah. the, if, you, if you can make a profit, then the, the business is sustainable. And if you're doing good, then that doing good can, can last a longer time and you can do more good. In your book, you said at some point that you need to choose one thing um, and kind of be an expert in that in that domain and actually make this your fight in order to, you know, that is your one fight to be able to kind of continue and grow sustainably. Mm. Um, is it? Do you, have you had any companies where you were working with them and it was very difficult for you or for them to kind of uh, see where they're, like social fight would be uh no actually okay. it's it's, it's very, it so i think that there's a couple of points there one is um i believe pretty much any business any business that sells into society can find a societal role any mm-hmm. business can find ways of reducing its environmental impact so i think any business i, I mean i i would draw the line at certain industries you know um uh sort of weapons or cigarettes i think i think you're going mm-hmm. to struggle but pretty much any other business can find a social mission i believe okay. uh, and when we've we've been able to do that it was clearly very obvious and easy with a toothpaste or a soap yeah. what what that social mission would be and we do a lot of work uh with with um toilet cleaners and toilet tissue and, and toilet pads and it's very obvious that they they can be engaged in the fight to tackle poor sanitation Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but there, you know, you look at what Dove does around um, female empowerment and self-esteem. You know, at, at most businesses and brands can find it. I think that the, the the point you raise about finding the one thing. I think there are. Um, we use a, a process called swords and shields, and I do think mm-hmm. it's um, it is possible, and it is right for any company or brand to focus on the one sword where they can go on the attack and make the most difference. Um, But that's not to say they shouldn't have other shields in place. So we do a lot of work with Kimberly Clark, for example, Mm -hmm. who are the world's biggest paper company who make um, Mm -hmm. face tissue, toilet tissue, um, femme care products, nappies. So they obviously use a lot of paper. So the sustainable sourcing of paper is incredibly important to their business and they need to source their paper in a sustainable way that doesn't encourage deforestation for example Mm -hmm. that's so that's really important that all their brands do that but that isn't to say that each of their brands can't have a social sort that they can fight on whether that's you know the the baby health or girl empowerment or or sanitation for example yeah, I see. Um, I see. But at the, at the same time, so um, the thing is that when when I was uh, reading as well your book, I thank you for reading my book, by the way. Hey, <laughs> I, I read it several times actually because it's right. it's it's that good. So um, just for the listeners, uh, I didn't I didn't introduce that. So um, Andy Last is also the author of the book Business on a Mission: How to Build a Sustainable Brand, um, which is I think the um, the publisher is a. Uh, Greenleaf, I think, or yeah. uh, Routledge, yeah. and so it's it's an amazing book um, with lots of examples, lots of ways of actually building your business to to actually do good. Um, as an entrepreneur, uh, I've I've read this several times, and and that's why I'm I'm ex- extremely excited to have you, so I can ask you all the questions around that. Um, that's so, so in your book, 
<laughs> in your book, uh, also you said at some point that there's some shields that are um, actually a must-have now, mm. and you don't have actually a choice of actually um, being environmental friendly, etc. Yeah. And it, when I was reading that, I was actually thinking, what is the limit between actually being genuine about those issues that are shields and not be... Um, a greenwasher in a way yeah. or not be perceived as a greenwasher. Sure. Well, I, I certainly think what you do has to be, what you say has to be proportional to what you do. Um, so companies have to um, properly review the environmental impacts they, they, they have as a business to do that with external experts, to get, get an external view on that and the, to address them in a way that is appropriate to all their stakeholders. And you rightly say, uh, uh, consumers uh, consumers are increasingly demanding um, uh, sort of good environmental stewardship on behalf of, from the companies they they buy from or work for, and um, and that's that's important. To there is that demand, particularly from a generation growing up for whom climate change has been a, a reality since they started school and, and the understanding of that. So I think that there's pressure coming from uh, uh, from younger generations in particular for, for choosing brands or choosing jobs with companies who are genuinely concerned and addressing their environmental impacts. The pressure is also coming from retailers. We're increasingly seeing retailers um, forcing um, businesses and brands to be able to prove their environmental credentials before they will stock them and will, uh, are at risk of being delisted if they don't have that in place. Increasingly, the reporting requirements that the governments and, um, and stock exchanges are putting on businesses to, to, to demonstrate what they're doing. And the, I think one of the most exciting areas is the increased um, relevance that investors are now placing on ESG criteria, so environmental, societal and governance criteria, which used to be the kind of niche stock that people who wanted to do good with their money might invest in, and it might be a small part of, of any investor's portfolio. Those ESG criteria are moving right to the center of how investors make decisions over where where they put money. And that is happening because they have recognized that it is too big a risk to invest in companies who aren't on top of uh, their environmental impacts, who are, who are greenwashing. So with all those different groups examining businesses, I, I think increasingly they can't afford to um, to greenwash because they will be called, called out on it. Yeah, but the thing is, um, I have seen, especially in the, in the sportswear industry, in the past few months, I have seen lots of companies that have been called out on many of their practices, especially during the mm. pandemic, um, in the in the fashion industry, there have been quite a few scandals. However, um, I, I have a feeling, but but then I'm I'm not an expert. Is that it? It doesn't. We are in in a society where news kind of move very fast, and memory sure. also is very fast. Sure. So. Yeah. Um, some of some of some companies would actually, you know, ride the 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 wave, and they would know that after the wave there would be some calm. But yeah. do you think, like, even with that, like with those waves going, like scandal, not scandal, etc., yeah. there is a move towards a more like sustainable yes. society as a whole. I do, and I, and I'll tell you why. I think the you're right in that consumer attention can pass, 
uh, and there'll, there'll be a scandal and people will avoid being associated with that brand during that scandal but but the news cycle moves on and, and I, I i hear you on that and i and i, I agree with that and if we were just relying on consumer attention and consumer pressure uh, I, I agree with you it could be vulnerable but we're not i think the, the retailers are um, serious about it. The world's biggest retailers are, are having mm-hmm. to be serious. Amazon is dis- delisting um, people who aren't don't have are, aren't, aren't serious about their packaging. For example, mm-hmm. uh, the investor pressure is real, and the the, mm-hmm. the rising importance of e- ESG criteria and mm-hmm. investment decisions. Uh, government pressure is real. We're seeing um, legislative legislative change everywhere from China to California that is pushing people in this. Um, direction um so i think that the the pressures are real if we were just relying on consumer attention and consumer choice that you're right that's not enough because the moment passes um but i think all that the combined forces are are definitely moving us in the right direction can you truly be very committed to a cause and be a big business that is like because i've I've always had yeah (laughs) I don't know because I've I've always had like my um my doubts to be extremely honest with you about um about like the the biggest businesses in the sense that you and in the system in general you know the the, the capitalistic yeah. system which is you need to make more profit and more money yeah. does that go really go hand in hand with a green greener world um yeah I mean I think there's there's a number of things there, it, and it's the again, it's the multiplicity of stakeholders um, that are driving it in that direction. <clears throat> now, that's not to say big business is perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but the, the visibility of big business, um, the, the um, their visibility in the they are in the sights of government, of investors, of uh, pressure groups um, that they, they are in in the public eye. And um, increasingly, the business, the, the, the sort of big, almost we used to be invisible businesses who are supplying them are in the public eye now because organizations like Greenpeace target them now through the supply chain. So big business can be a force for good. The, the, the key thing is for their, <clears throat> when they're talking about social issues, to identify the one that is relevant to their business, that they have the scale and the business incentive to address. Um, I believe, and, and certainly on the grid. What, what we can't move towards is a world of ever-increasing consumption. So the business model need to evolve um, to face that reality. But again, the increasingly increasing demand on um, sustainability reporting and demand for uh, e- ESG performance from investors is, is pushing us in that direction. Now, that probably isn't moving as fast as a lot of people would want. But, but the, the, the pressure is inexorable, I believe. And certainly the two mega trends at play in the world um, of, of, of a population that is growing up that, that has only known about the reality of climate change, coupled with the interconnectedness and the transparency that the internet is forcing, those two combined forces, uh, for me, are, are putting uh, a pressure on big business to um, deliver on a progressive environmental and social agenda is, is real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for you, I had a question, which is: Is the future of a good business in the hand of in the hands of small and medium enterprises? Mm-hmm. But for you, it's more in the hands of of everyone, actually. Well, I, I think I think it's 
It's, it's both. Um, and I think um, uh, you have experience of working in a big corporation and working in a, uh, an entrepreneurial. I, I, we, we set up our own business, so I have experience of, a, of an SME, but um, I, all the, the clients we work with are, are huge multinationals. And I think it's, the, the Mondelez you mentioned is, is a really interesting example. So this is, you know, they're one of the world's big uh, cocoa um, users. So they, they, they source cocoa. And I think you, you and I have both been to cocoa growing regions of the world where there are environmental and societal issues, you know, writ large. There are huge complications in the cocoa supply chain. Small entrepreneurial brands like Tony's Chocolate Only, who we were both aware of, can move very quickly and bring a an issue like child labor in cocoa supply to, to the public attention very quickly and they, they are brilliant at campaigning. Tony's Chuckle Only will never change the issue at scale because it's a small business. What they can do is spike the big companies, the big cocoa users like Mondelez into action and into faster action. And it's interesting that I think of Elon Musk at Tesla. He said his his dream wasn't for everyone to drive a Tesla. His dream was that Tesla would force Ford to move more quickly towards electric vehicles. And I think that that's the dynamic, I think, is really interesting between SMEs and, and, and big business. SMEs can can raise an issue and bring a sharp focus to it and demonstrate a market opportunity really quickly. But it's big business. We need to, to, to make that change at scale. But then what about competition? Like because I'm I'm thinking about my yeah. business now and I'm just like yeah. okay so um, <laughs> now uh, we kind of you know set ourselves to be the most sustainable that we can yep. obviously with with the limit of of the uh, of the system and with the limit of the supply chain etc um, our uh, our power like you said is limited and our money is a cash flow is limited mm. uh, so we can't move as fast as let's say Nike or Adidas or another brand and so how I think I think you can move fast it's just you can't necessarily be at the scale of yeah definitely of yeah, we, yeah. We, we try to move as fast as we can yeah. but um, the thing is that the, the opportunities and also the um, the are more limited it's like are more limited than than let's say big brands that are really established in all the countries that we want to to be in mm. and so for for us that was also a question of can can you be competitive through your claim uh as a business or is it yes. more like well I, I, so I, I i believe you can absolutely and i think one of the reasons we were keen um, to, to sort of take our, our, our salt business into the Mullen Low Group, which is part of IPG, which is one of the world's sort of biggest marketing services networks, is that those claims, those those environmental claims or societal claims, those need to be brought to attention in the most creative way. You know, turning the power of, of, of the advertising industry and its ability to identify you know deep consumer insights to come up with creative excellence. Um, to, to generate behavior change through that creativity. It's, it's that connection that I think is the most powerful. I think an environmental claim or a social claim in and of itself isn't enough to grab attention. As a, mm -hmm. as a kickoff point for brilliant creativity, which will grab attention, I think that's where the, mm -hmm. magic, the magic really happens. Yeah. And do you think like, um, because I'm in charge of uh, the communications now for Kamak, mm -hmm. um, do you think you can actually be really genuine when you talk about these? Because that's a kind of a line that I, um, we want to, for example, show like that our clothes are good clothes made with, with a good intention in a sustainable way. Mm -hmm. And um, we also have like a, a claim that we actually want to 
give uh, every woman the opportunity to be in the public space, whatever her choice of clothes is. Yeah. Um, and sometimes when I write, you know, the the different um, adverts, when I write, you know, the scenarios for, I have a feeling where I'm like, am I actually? doing too much you know am i am i actually pushing those claims too hard on the consumer um and i don't want to be seen as you know an opportunistic or as you know a person that kind of brings in the claims just to sell things because we genuinely are that i don't know where's the line but you 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 must believe that what you are doing and and i think it's brilliant what you're doing and it's based on a genuine insight and it's tackling a real social issues so it's um it's a brilliant thing and i think you 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 i'm assuming everybody in the company believes that the more the more clothes you sell the the sort of more social good you will achieve um so yeah. there's nothing there's nothing wrong with with wanting to to grow and to be competitive and to win market share from from other players that that's all part of it because the, the more you grow the more you bring attention to the issue the the more good you will do. I think the mistake is, I think that there's two things. One is um, consumers aren't going to buy you purely for that on that issue. They're going to buy you because the clothes look good and they're going to, they're going to buy you because their friends have heard of the brand and it's sort of a, it's, it's a sign of, um, you know, it, it's trendy or whatever, or all the, the performance of the products, they feel good, the clothes, all those sort of things. There's a whole raft of all the price points, right? Or they see it where they're buying clothes and their friends, you know, there's any number of reasons why people, so any sort of societal or environmental claims have to be a part of that. And then the other thing is you have to recognize how long people's attention spans is. You can't bombard them with six or seven different messages. It has to be a really tight message and image and brand that incorporates um, the, the societal kickoff you have with your product um, and, and weaves it together into a, a sort of single compelling brand and message. That's, yeah, what, yeah, that's what we do anyway. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's what we, we're doing as well. But sometimes, you know, like um, I just uh, – I'm just scared to be um, or or to make like people perceive the brand as being um, like not a charity, but like a social fighter and not actually a business. And that is like the line where sometimes I have a feeling where um, we are very close to our social um, objectives and to our social like uh, way of, of viewing business. So that is so into our business that sometimes I just have... Um, a feeling that w- w- the line between being a business and being actually a, a social fighter is is very slim, um, mm. and being able to kind of distinguish that line and not go beyond it and choose the fights, as you said, yeah. choose one sword, etc., can be quite difficult. It can be, but, but you look at you know Nike have been tackling gender equality for you know best part of fifty years and you know that they, they uh, the sort of the black lives matter and and, and the, the the championing of of that they've done they've managed to do that alongside very clearly being a business that wants to sell you know sports yeah. about yeah yeah definitely um, my my other questions now is mm. um we like you said retailers want people to to have labels and want uh, companies actually to be recognized or to have actually, you know, proof that they're doing good. Um, And we've had a couple of conversations with retailers ourselves and um, some of them kind of push us to actually have some labels Uh, ourselves as a brend. We don't have to. As in sort of the, the, 
um, sort of NGO label type things. Uh, or, yeah, like um, Fairware yeah, or yeah, some yeah. things, yeah. things like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, most of our um, most of our producers, like not producers, most of our like um, how do you say it? F- f- firms, fabrics, um, and uh, the, the people that we, we source our things like our yard firm are labeled and i was just like really thinking about is a label becoming kind of a a sticker good to have you know because there's so many of them Mm. how do you is it really that important to have a label now and is it that important to always have the same labels as your retailers or do you think like as a business, we can actually say these are our principle. These are principle that we have with our partners, yeah. um, but we we're not going to have a label ourselves. Yeah. So I think I think that there's a couple of things there. One is, um, say your consumers just want quick reassurance that um, your claims stack up, and and a, and a label can do that. And it, it, it's a very sort of quick reassurance of that. You can't put too much stuff on pack or a point of sale, but you need a, a quick reassurance for consumers that that's the case. And you need retail distribution. And I would have thought, you know, that uh, any startup um, does need to get retail distribution quickly. So if a particular label is a shortcut and a, and a requirement to get to a particular retailer who is key to your business, then um, I think that's quite a strong consideration. Yeah, but I'm, I was more thinking about the meaning of that label. Yeah. Because if you get a label just to be distributed, what about the genuine kind of? What about like the the motivational thing behind it? Is it truly, um, is it truly worth it in the sense that obviously for a business reason it is worth it, but like for a for for a social reason to always have something to prove that you're doing good when you know that you're doing good and when you have like this. yeah. I mean, I think, I think you need, you do need, um, it's always important to have third party endorsement for what you're claiming. Um, so you do need experts to say, it can't just be you saying this is good because we believe it's good and we're selling it and we know what we're talking about. You do need a third party for that credibility uh, and authenticity, whether that's a label, a, a, a label. I think if, you, if you're in consumer retail, a label, a logoed label is is often the, the, the easiest way to do that. It's not the only way to do that, of course, to have third-party endorsement. There's um, plenty of endorsement you can drive through uh, third-party experts and their networks, but it's, I suspect it's a useful shortcut. For, yeah. Your company is, label, is, has, is B Corp we're certified. We're yes. Yeah. And that, that, that's, yes. Karen, ask your question before I start jumping into an answer. <laughs> I was just... Yeah. Uh, I, I was just thinking, um, did, did that really change the like? Because B Corp is, uh, is, is our, we wish to be able to be uh, B Corp certified yes. quite soon. Um, yeah. Is it, has it changed something within your business when yeah. you, when you were certified? Definitely, I, I would thoroughly recommend it. So, so we were very keen. We're, we're based in London, and when the B Corp movement um, came to the UK, started in the UK in 2015, uh, we were in the first group of companies uh, accredited as a B Corp, and we're very proud to do that. Um, we're very glad to do that. And the reason we did it isn't necessarily the same as the long-term benefit, which is interesting. So the reason we did it is we've been involved in sustainability and purpose for a long, long time. And I mean, to your point about logos and authenticity, we were very aware that lots of other agencies were starting to talk about purpose. And mm-hmm. we wanted to differentiate ourselves uh, from the ones who were just talking about it that 
you know, we were genuine and we were third party endorsed and we were accredited and we'd gone through a rigorous accreditation, external accreditation process to sort of prove that we walked the walk, not just talk the talk. So that, that, that was why we did it, to differentiate ourselves in, in our marketplace. The, the side benefit or the, the, the unexpected benefit it has had is yes, it's been that's been useful to us in, in how we position ourselves in the marketplace and and reassure our clients who were advising on purpose and sustainability that we we're genuine and we know what we're talking about. Um, what it did do was uh, it really helped us attract talent. So it helped us become a magnet for talent from from young people in particular who who wanted to work in this space. So it was it was very good for that. And what it has subsequently done is it has enabled people in our business to hold leadership to account. So um, however much you talk about, you know, with non-hierarchical, anyone can push ideas and push uh, a question. That's very difficult in reality for a junior person to um, question the boss, even if, you know, the boss mm. is as amenable as, as, as I am. Yeah. It, it's, it's difficult uh, for them to be able to say to someone who's, who's maybe been around a lot longer than them, I disagree with your strategy. That's quite a punchy thing for someone to be able to do. It is very easy for them just to say the perfectly innocent question, is that B Corp? That decision you're making, is that in line with B Corp? So it holds us to account and it enables um, the, the whole of our sort of internal business to hold me and the, and the rest of the leadership to account. So I think that that's how it's um, it's worked for us. It, we, we did it to differentiate ourselves in the marketplace, but the internal benefits have been um, have been just as powerful. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really interesting uh, that you said about retaining talent and being um, uh, I have I haven't thought about that, but that's that's very that, that's very, very interesting. Uh, we try I mean, literally every, everybody who comes for interview since we became B Corp has mentioned it in their interview. So yeah. it it is it is something quite um, recognizable in a way because yeah, it's cool. true that when you when you look at different uh, I I did that when I was looking for a job I was also looking at one one of the th- first thing I would do obviously learn about the company but then I would learn about the purpose the mission and also if they if they were certified in a way but also what what they did you know on the on the ground if they actually did yes. something about it or yeah. were they actually just talking about it well yeah. I think the fact that you as you say when you were shopping around for for a company you were looking for that third party certification and mm-hmm. interested in that which i think tells you something yeah. yeah yeah definitely definitely um so now i just wanted to probably move on to um the last part of this interview which is the current situation with covid the different um situation with the businesses living with covid and, and the post-covid um era let's say of, yeah. of business um have you as a company as a company and as an agency seen um about the customers and consumers are watching companies with a different eye um th- with a different eye depending on what they've done through the pandemic and what yeah. type of things that uh, they've you know I think, I think that's certainly the case um i've just uh i've written a, a second second edition of the book business on a mission i've just submitted the the, the manuscript on that to, to to routledge the publisher so that'll be coming out later this year and we, we've added a chapter on on covid and the, and the the covid acceleration and i think there's um there's two things that happen there in relation to companies societal and environmental i think one that sort of enforced pause demonstrated that we as a race human beings can stop climate change and it is in our power to do that and we saw in the the sort of reduction in transport and the and the, the drops in um 
environmental impacts, that it is possible and we are going to have to rebuild our economy all over the world. And the notion that we can, having had this pause, can actually make a step change and it is possible and there is greater sort of demand to build back in a green way. I think that COVID, COVID has, has sort of enabled a change there. Uh, and certainly there's been a step up in investors looking at the E of the ESG criteria in, in investment decisions because they have recognised that change is happening and is happening more quickly now. And the other on the societal thing, again, the um, forced uh, a sort of increased interaction that was pushed online because we weren't interacting as much um, physically uh, has sort of increased the pace with which social equity issues um, uh, uh, happen. I don't think it was any, you know, Black Lives Matter has been uh, around as a sort of campaigning idea for um, for, for, for a long time now. Uh, ben and Jerry's, who we work with, they were um, talking about Black Lives Matter's issues in 2016. It came, I don't think it's any coincidence at all that it came to the, the fore uh, during COVID because people were almost sort of trapped on, on their screens. Uh, and therefore, the, um, uh, the sort of images we saw from the States and the, ability, the campaigning ability to sort of bring that to life was accelerated because of the situation we were in. So I think that that notion that COVID accelerating the rise of, of social issues uh, and the focus on uh, an environmental build back, uh, de- definitely COVID has certainly accelerated um, both of those uh, and, there, and therefore the scrutiny uh, under which companies are put. And not not just by consumers, but by re- I'm seeing it by retailers, by investors, by governments, by by all, yeah. all groups. Do you yeah. believe in boycott? Yeah, um, I I think it's actually a much more um, uh, likely uh, um, part of consumer behaviour in this area. As I say, I believe the move towards greater societal. Uh, intervention and reduction of environmental impact by businesses and brands is driven as much by investor pressure, retailer pressure, government pressure, pressure group pressure, as by consumer pressure. And I think the consumer pressure that there are some consumers, increasing numbers, particularly within Gen Z, who will consciously buy because of environmental or social reasons. I think there's an even greater number who will avoid brands who have become toxic. I think that and that but uh, boycott um, is is a is a trend. I, I don't think brand, I think brands are more driven by preventing them being tarnished with a bad story. That that's even more powerful. That stick is even more powerful than the carrot of, of sort of wanting to promote good good messages. So I think mm-hmm. that the, the sort of boycott is a is a is a is a real phenomenon and and a powerful one and one that is certainly driving. Uh, companies thinking. Do you think, um, like in in the situation of the pandemic and what we've seen, especially like the the fact that um, most of the the smallest companies have been really touched by that um, mm. by the the economic um, crash a little bit. So. I have seen among my friends and acquaintances that they're actually trying the the mo- as as much as they can to buy from small uh, companies, etc. Mm-hmm. Do you think that um, consumer behavior is going to go towards more smaller companies and kind of local companies? Have you seen that when you 
worked with uh, with Brent. Well, no? Certainly, the um, well, the, the anecdotal experience of, of of me is the same as you know we're, we've all been living. I've not been commuting into London, so I've been buying locally, and you become aware of your own local environment and and the, the small businesses who are there. And I think lots of us have, have experienced that, and I would hope that's a, you know that feels like it's a trend. I think what's interesting the the huge economic earthquake that has happened means there will be entrepreneurship as part of the and and big businesses who were maybe struggling and on their last legs. The pandemic has has killed them, and we've seen that mm-hmm. with with a lot of retail and city centre retail and, and those sort of things. What will happen is it will be entrepreneurial on entrepreneurs who will fill that gap, and we, we will see an acceleration of, of of that change. So there's this huge opportunity. You know, after any any huge upheaval, there is there is there creates a sort of market into which new businesses can go, and entrepreneurs. Uh, will find it easier to change direction and and create a business that fits a new reality. It's easier for them to move more quickly than it is for big business. Now, yeah. there are smart people in big business who are spotting trends and are, and are moving mm-hmm. in that direction. But I think that a period of great change creates huge opportunity for entrepreneurs. Yeah, and we've seen that. I've seen like um, lots of my friends actually are trying to kind of get into new businesses, you know, yeah. trying to sell things online, etc. Etsy is actually, you know, when you look at also the the different um, uh, the, the different stock prices of you know yes. the, all of the online selling platforms, so you kind of see that most people want to have a little bit of a side hustle in a way. Well, I think so. But the side hustle trend was happening already. It's just this has accelerated it. It, was, you know, it wasn't like Gen Z wasn't side hustling, wasn't and millennials weren't thinking about side hustles before. This has certainly accelerated it. But I look at my my brother, for example, is, a, is an antiques dealer and he deals in an, antique frames and always has done and would used to spend his life going from fair to fair to auction house, from auction house to auction house, in a van the whole time selling things. Most of his business is now on Instagram, and that was forced because all the fairs, you know, you know, maybe would have got there. It would have happened more slowly, but it's happened instantly, almost because of the the pandemic. Did he enjoy the change? Did he enjoy? Like, he loved the, it. He's, so he's absolutely loved it, and it's created mm-hmm. a, a sort of his business has has thrived during mm-hmm. this time. But it was a move. It was a move that probably would have happened over yeah. a period of years, but it happened instantly. That that yeah. was. I think that's the the interesting thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I still have like two questions for you, and then um, <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about. Um, you talked about investors a lot and what they're looking into uh, when they when they try to invest into companies, etc. Um, and the the role of impact investing. Mm. So I have a feeling that well, we we have investors ourselves mm-hmm. at Camac. And when we presented our project, uh, we actually presented everything, ex- including the the social the social aspect of it, and that was obviously very important when they when they chose to to uh, to invest in us. And I was just wondering, do, can you give probably entrepreneurs that are actually trying to bring their um, their business to life, how can they, in like three, four words, how can, uh, three, four sentences, sorry, how can they build their purpose in order for them to thrive, but also to find investors if they want, if they need to? Sure. Well, I, I would, I, I certainly think investors are aware of the environmental and, and social changes that are happening at pace in the world. So to demonstrate you are 
um, tapping into a, a trend that is there and a market. But don't don't forget you're a business. You know, if if you are talking to investors, the prime thing you are saying to them is you will make a return on your investment and you will feel good at that money will be doing good because you're investing in us. Um, but don't, um, don't be af- afraid to talk about the profits you will make, the growth you will have because you are tapping into this so social issue that is accelerating because of young people or COVID or, or whatever it, uh, whatever it is. Don't, don't be frightened of talking about yourself as a business, as a as socially understanding business, but I wouldn't be pitching to investors saying, you know, this is a way of you achieving, um, you know, you feeling good about yourself for achieving good, because if they want to give to charity, they should give to charity. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. And uh, last word, uh, probably as um, maybe your plans and the plans of Mon Lossol for for the end of 2021. So you said you have a book coming out at the end of the year. Yes. So we're publishing a second edition of of Business on a Mission. Um, There's new interviews in it. So uh, I'm very excited. I've I've been interviewing um, Alan Jope, who's the new CEO, or he's been in for a year or so now, uh, CEO of Unilever, and looking at what he's done to drive uh, sustainable brands right across um, his business. We're talking to, we've talked to BlackRock, one of the world's biggest asset managers who hold $7 trillion worth of assets under management to why they are looking at ESG criteria. We've looked at um, the impact of COVID. So very excited for um, that. I was very glad to finish my homework and hand the manuscript in and looking forward to that that coming out later in the year. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to having the new version. So thank you so much, Andy, for the time that you've uh, you've given me. It was um, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. I've learned a lot and I hope that all the listeners have, are learning as well. Where can we find you if you want to continue conversation online? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at, at SaltyLast uh, and our website is mullenlowsalt.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to um, also uh, send us your comments and uh, tune in for a new podcast in a month's time. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks. Bye.